Welcome to the Gospel Addict Podcast. I'm Greg Bryan. And I'm Jim Reske. We're gospel addicts because we believe the gospel of Jesus isn't just good news, it's the best news ever. We're addicted to the gospel because it doesn't just start us out in the Christian life, it is the Christian life. Join us as we look at the Bible through the lens of the gospel. Thanks so much for listening. You're listening to the Gospel Addict Podcast. I'm Greg, and I'm joined with some friends today. I've got my friend Felix, my friend Randy, and my co-host, Jim Reske. Guys, I hope you guys are doing well. I'll 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 let you talk in a minute. Today, we're going to talk about the letter of 2 Thessalonians, one of the first letters that the Apostle Paul wrote out of all the different letters he wrote, you know, he wrote like almost two-thirds of the New Testament, so he did a lot of writing. This is one of the first letters he wrote. We're going to read the chapters and then give our impressions and talk about themes that we see and questions, and we hope and pray that it's beneficial to those of you listening with us, join with us. This is the Gospel Addict Podcast. We call ourselves Gospel Addicts, and so Jim, I'm going to start with you. Why why do we call this the Gospel Attic Podcast? Because once you've tasted the kindness of the Lord and just tasted his grace, you just can't get enough. Just like being an addict. You gotta, uh, you gotta keep coming back for more. Yeah, so we talk about that the good news of Jesus not only brings us to God for, for our salvation, but that good news is what helps us grow as believers helps us become more and more like Jesus, that we we never get enough of it. And we live in a world full of addictions. People are addicted to all kinds of different things. Um, one of the most healthy addictions in the world is to be addicted to the gospel. So Randy, do you have any thoughts on that before we dive into Second Thessalonians? Well, um, I think, Craig, the one thing I, just as a reminder, is how much we need Christ. The one thing I do like about the, the term gospel addict is that uh, addict is something that they, they need. They have to have it. And I think for us, it's just a reminder that um, I, I love the verse that says, Jesus, who is your life? Mm-hmm. And that, um, you know, someone once said to me, could you live the Christian life if the Holy Spirit was taken away? And if he answers yes, then we're not doing it right. Because it's, it's not hard to follow Jesus. It's impossible apart from God. And yet God's the one that makes it, makes it work. So I think that's part of your idea with, a, with the name. Thanks. That's great. Felix, uh, what's going on with you? Uh, just my, my college, actually my university, my PhD has started. And I've been busy with that. It's, you know, like it hits you. So I'm, I'm, I'm a little overwhelmed with everything that's happening in my life. I was actually, yesterday I was praying to God to give me more perseverance and, you know, strength and consistency with following Lord and with my, with my, with my studies too, with my education, because I feel like PhD is going to be a lot tougher than I thought. (laughs) So that's where I am. It will be tough, but as you depend on God, he'll, he'll get you through it, you know? And yeah. uh, do you have any thoughts on being a gospel addict? It's like, you know, like everybody said, it's it, you, you get hooked onto it once you, you know, once you start following him, it's so hard to, you know, there, there could be times when, you know, you feel like, you know, maybe, you know, I don't want this life anymore, but then, and I think that's why we are addicts <laughs> because we are somehow it, it, our life feels incomplete without him. That's how I look at it. You know, it's incomplete. That's, that's how I felt for a while when I was like, you know, not on the right path. So, yeah. That's great. Well, let's, let's dive in guys. Um, who wants to read uh, chapter one? I do. Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God Um, our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers, 
and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love every one of you has for each other is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and in trials you're enduring. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and, um, and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful um, angels. He will um, punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will be punished with enduring destruction and, and shout out from the um, presence of the Lord, shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of the power. And the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may count you worthy of his calling and that his power may be fulfilled in every good purpose of you, yours and every act prompted by your faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Jim. Uh, what can you tell us about the background of Second Thessalonians, and uh, and then maybe we'll start diving into the theme of this chapter? Yeah, sure. So we talked about this a little bit in our last podcast, talking about First Thessalonians. But these are First and Second Thessalonians are some of the first epistles that Paul wrote. People think they're the first ones, and they happen in rather rapid succession. So he wrote First Thessalonians. Clearly, by reading, you can see he's answering certain questions they had. He had uh, established that church, and we read it last time in the in Acts 17 by preaching in the, in the uh, Thessalonica uh, for three consecutive Sabbaths. And then they had a run out of town, but Timothy was left behind to help establish the church and gave a great, great report to Paul. And so he wrote that letter back to them, First Thessalonians, and then very shortly thereafter, apparently, wrote Second Thessalonians back to them uh, to answer some other questions they had to deal with this persecution, which we're reading about here in chapter one. And then they had some questions about... Uh, the uh, second coming, which we'll get to in chapter two. And so he's addressing those questions. And then he had to address this particular problem with idleness that we're going to get to in chapter three. That's a little bit of background. That's great. So the theme of one of the big themes in chapter one here is persecution. It, apparently the persecution must have got worse even um, from when he wrote first Thessalonians to second Thessalonians. So uh, what, what stands out to you with uh, his message about dealing with and handling persecution. Yeah, I'll start out just with a couple thoughts. One is, I, first of all, I like the idea, just the structure of this, how he brackets it with prayer. I mean, he starts in verse three. He doesn't, it's not really a prayer, but he's talking about praying for them. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren. So he's talking about, you know, praying for them and and giving thanks to God for them. So he's kind of starting, starting off that way. And then at the end, he kind of breaks into prayer. To this end, we pray for you always, or I guess here it's not breaking to prayer, it's talking about prayer again. But to this end, we also pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling, calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith and power so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you and him according to the grace of our, of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So it reads like a prayer. He, I just thought it interesting how he brackets it at the beginning of the end um, uh, with prayer. And then, and then there's one more thought, Greg. I, I just think, uh, you know, I, I, I get these epistles. They all kind of start similarly where Paul says, you know, here's Paul. and I'm writing to the church. Grace and peace to you, blah, blah, blah. But there's something here in the, in the intro that maybe sets up the idea of suffering, how they're suffering. Because I just noticed we were reading tonight. Uh, he mentions father twice in the intro. Um, and, uh, you, you know, so he just Paul, Savannah, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God, our father. And, and maybe there's something about emphasizing this. So I just want you to know as you're going through this suffering and we're praying for you in the suffering and you're going through that, but you, you, you can really rest and you'd be assured of the fatherhood of God and his, his care and his loving care for you. I just, 
this is why we kind of do the podcast. We read the Bible. We talk about it. You learn insights as you go and think about things that I hadn't seen that before. Like there's two mentions of the father there at the beginning. Maybe Paul's, you know, trying to through repetition, drive the point home. Hey, remember who you are. Remember who your father is. Now let's talk about your suffering, what you're going through. And that's a quick thought, Greg. I don't know what, uh, maybe you or someone else have maybe quick observations and we can dive in a little more deeper. Yeah, Randy, you have any any uh, thoughts or observations? You know, what hit me as I was reading it was it talks about how the church is increasing and how their faith is increasing in the midst of persecution. And sometimes I think in our comfort here, we wonder, like, how can that be? Like, people are coming to Christ and the people that know Christ are growing, even though life is hard. And we talk to people around the world who face persecution. And yet, um, you know, I think you've mentioned before, Greg, that some of the fastest growing places for the church around the world are where persecution is taking place. And so I just think that's uh, it's a powerful concept that um, amidst, amidst persecution, the gospel is not stopped. Yeah, that is it is an interesting observation. I mean, we have, you know, we always talk about how blessed we are to be in America where we kind of have freedom of religion. We don't experience much persecution. We have a lot of comfort. We have the opportunity to be successful, but all those things can be actually hurt us in some ways hurt our faith because we can, it's, we kind of have an easy life life is kind of easy. And when, when life is difficult, that's when you kind of lean into God and you, and you really have to trust him. And um, it is kind of interesting to think about um, how the church thrives under persecution. They say the church in, um, well, um, in Asia is like growing very, very rapidly. Churches in other parts of where, where persecution is the worst, that's where the church is thriving. Um, interesting. Uh, Felix, you have any comments on that or thoughts? About I, that? I was just thinking about it. You know, when you don't have something, you kind of value it more. And I think in America, because, you know, you have it, you have that uh, religious freedom. And then, you know, you have, God is just like right around the corner. So people, you know, a lot of people who are not believers, they kind of do not realize the value of it when i was when i was in another country and i i was kind of craving to go to a church and i could not i realized that that you know i i wish I, at that time i was thinking i wish i could go to a church and you know i listened to a sermon but i there was no resource at that time and uh, i think a lot of people over here in america don't realize it that you know what they have you know, it, 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 it's so true. And I just was just thinking of the conversation we had um, before the podcast started talking about uh, people who are comfortable, people who are complacent like that. Uh, and uh, uh, Felix thinking about that, um, uh, that reaction when it's available to you, you take it for granted, right? Um, mm -hmm. And uh, Randy, you're talking about visiting prisons and that's a different kind of persecution, right? So people there, maybe they're all of their own doing and they're there, they're there, but they're for the... Uh, for what they've done, but it's a, it's not a comfortable life. And in some ways, I think you were saying you find the people there are more open to the gospel and uh, versus people that you can witness to at a college campus or somewhere else who say life is good. Why do I need Christ? Life is fine. You know, um, I don't know. I think you're just sharing about that. It seemed like that cassette range from what you were talking about, that kind of openness from uh, your experience in that recently. Yeah, I um, I just had an opportunity to go with a ministry and share Christ with some people. And you're right, the persecution wasn't coming from somewhere else. In fact, the people that were there were glad that they were hearing because they, they knew it was one of the things that could change someone's heart. But, but at the same time, hard times. Sometimes it's persecution. Sometimes it's difficult circumstances. But I think it's a constant reminder to us of our need. And ultimately, we're not in control. Um, we want to be. We try to be. We fight for it. But ultimately, it's God that's in control. And 
I think that's when we, we finally learn to give up and give up control. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think here he's, you know, he's talking about persecution and suffering. These people are suffering for Christ. There's a new church in Thessalonica and they're obviously going through a lot. And he's trying to give them a new paradigm, a new way to understand it and think about it. And I like how he talks in verse six about justice, you know, because they could be sitting there saying, it's just not right here. I'm trying to do the right thing. I'm trying to follow God. And what, why these people are, why can't they leave me alone? Why are they hassling me? Why are they persecuting me for my faith, right? right? Um, so they're at that point, they're a re religious minority in this secular city and being persecuted. And Paul's trying to talk to them and say, you know what? I know it seems unfair right now, but there is justice coming in the end, right? There's going to be just a just God. Uh, and he talks about, you know, the people that are afflicting you now, there's going to be justice. So that, knowing, kind of understanding that, uh, says so you can you can kind of endure what you're going through now because God knows what you're going through and there's going to be justice for all this in the end. And so then he kind of spends the next section of that paragraph and explaining what that justice looks like. Uh, but that's kind of, uh, I think he's really trying to offer them as this kind of hope and uh, a, way to, a way to see what they're going through now, uh, what they're going through now through different eyes. Yeah, hope in the midst of uh, persecution. I feel like, you know, <clears throat> reflecting upon what Randy shared with us about, you know, going to the prison and witnessing to, you know, people who are their prisoners there. I feel like we are a very simple creation. You know, God created us. And then we are living this life on this planet. And there are so many distractions, you know, you You've got to go to college. You got to get education. You got to make money. You got to get a car. You got to get a house and all that. But at the end of the day, we are a simple creation. God created us, and it's a relationship between, you know, us and Him. And then, at the end of our lifespan, we go back to Him. So people who are in the prison have pretty much lost everything, or you know, they kind of realize that the only thing that they have is God. So I think God also kind of challenges you when you forget about him or, you know, you're too distracted by other things. God brings you back to, you know, the most, the most basic relationship, which is between you and him. So I think it's easier when you go into a prison, it, mm -hmm. it kind of becomes easier to get close to God because there are no other distractions. Your, your life or whatever life you had planned is, kind of if not over then you know a part of it is over so you realize all that you have left is god and i think it's for all of us it's the same it's just that we have so many other distractions that you know in in, in that list of priority we sometimes put other things above god but you know it, and as a as a follower of christ it's important to put him above everything else so kind of what i hear you saying is in a strange way yeah. In a spiritual way, they have an advantage. Uh, people in prison have an advantage. Now, obviously, uh, I mean, they 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 had to do something really bad to get get themselves yeah. in prison, and and for that, hopefully, they've re repented. And and but but it is kind of interesting because it reminds me of a a sermon I heard from Tim Keller talk, called "The Two Great Tests." In this sermon, he said that there's two great tests in life. One is success and one is suffering. How you handle success and how you handle suffering is either going to draw you closer to God or it's going to push you farther from God. And uh, sadly, people that get successful tend to drift away from God, where people who are suffering tend to go lean in towards God. But both of those tests, success and suffering, are some of the two greatest tests that human beings face. And in America, it seems like the test that we are constantly challenged to deal with is the, is the, is the test of success. And we're, we're all striving for it. We all want it. It's, it can be dangerous because if you get successful, you might push God to the side. Any final thoughts about that, Randy? No, I was going to say, I had a friend who said to me once that Every one of us are going to face things in our life. Someone's going to get sick. Someone will die. We'll lose a job. Uh, our finances fall apart. It, it, something. We will all face hard times. Every one of us. And uh, I remember as he talked about Jesus, his comment was, 
some of you right now think you've got the world by the tail and everything's great. You don't need anything. And why would I consider this? And he said, the, all I would ask is that when that time comes in your life, that you'll remember the one who I spoke about today, because you'll, you're gonna like, we don't get out of this life unscathed. Um, you know, we, I mean, I think about a, a man that went through a divorce and he called me every day until all of a sudden he had another girlfriend. And then all of a sudden he was like, Oh, I don't need this anymore. Right. Mm. That, but we do need Christ. And I think that's the reminder is there are things that come and sometimes they're gifts to us as a reminder that, Hey, there's something more to life than what you're pursuing. You know, our pastor told a really cool story on Sunday. It was a story about a horse and I'm probably going to get the story wrong, but, but you get the idea of what the, what the, what the story is, deals with. There's this guy who had a horse and, and there was a famine. And so all his friends were saying, sell the horse, sell the horse. So then you can get, you can feed yourself. And he's like, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to sell my horse. And then the horse ran away. And then he said, oh, I'm so sorry that your horse ran away. That's really bad. And the guy said, well, I don't know if it's bad. I don't know if it's bad. I don't know if it's good. And then, the, then a couple of days later, the horse came back and it brought 25 other horses with it. And those 25 other, so, and then they said, oh, this is really good. You, you got, you not only got your horse back, but you got 25 other horses. And he's like, well, I don't know if it's good. I don't know if it's good that they're here or I don't know if it's bad. And so one of the, his son decided that he was going to train one of these wild horses. And so his son got on the horse and then fell off and broke his leg. And they said, oh, so sorry that your son broke his leg. That's really bad. And then he's like, well, I don't know if it's good. I don't know if it's bad. And because his son broke his leg, he didn't have to go into the army where all his friends uh, ended up dying on the battlefield. And they're like, oh, your son didn't have to go into go be drafted because he broke his leg. That's really good. And you can see what's happening here is we think we we can understand circumstances like, oh, this is really good This that this happened, when really, who are we to know what's good and bad when things happen in our lives? Ultimately, you know, you know, we don't, but, but we do have hope. And that's what this first chapter talks about is the hope that we have in Jesus. Should we move to the second chapter? Let's move forward because it gets a little, actually chapter two is probably the most dicey chapter in this letter. It's, it's it's a tough one. It's a tough one to really understand. I'm not sure. And that and that's another thing about our podcast. We're not saying that we're experts and that we totally understand everything about the Bible. We're willing to say, I don't know. I don't I don't know who the man of lawlessness is, you know, that that Paul's talking about. But chapter two, I'm gonna go ahead and start reading it. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and are being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us, saying that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for the day of the Lord, for, for that day, will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is to be worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And, and now you know what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is at is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken till he is taken out all out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and, to, and so be saved. 
For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. And then he ends the chapter saying this, but we ought to always thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning, God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit through belief in the truth. He called you He called you to this through our gospel so that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word, whether by mouth or by letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us by his grace and, and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope. Encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Whenever we get to this topic of end times, I find it very confusing. And I like to just say that I believe two things about the end times, that Jesus is coming back and that his return is imminent. And to me, those are the two most important things about the, the second coming of Christ. As far as trying to figure out exactly the day and, and all these things and or lining up how it's all going to be, how it's all going to unfold. I find that to be a very confusing uh, science to, to deal with. What about you guys? Yeah, I think it's really important to remember that, you know, um, one commentator is looking at talking about this, that this is really not here for us to speculate on dates and try to figure this out. That's uh, people, a lot of Christians spend a lot of time uh, with endless speculation saying, what does it mean? Does it mean this? Does it mean that? Trying to figure out when the end times are coming and those types of things. But it's meant for encouragement. It's meant to give you hope, to meant to say, look, um, uh, we have a God that's coming back. And that's what I want to, I want to start with that because you talked about the two things. One is that Jesus is coming back. And, and just stop right there because I was meditating that this week, thinking about this, thinking we have, we have a, a belief that says our Lord is coming back. In other words, if you ask the average person on the street, lots of people, lots of people don't believe in Christianity will say, oh, sure, Jesus was fine. He's a wonderful person, a great teacher of love and peace, said a lot of good things to a lot of people, just like lots of other religious leaders uh, throughout history. I've got nothing against them, you know, so if you said names, but if you say, yeah, you know, I I really like the teaching of St. Augustine, who lived maybe 500 years after Christ, and Augustine is coming back. You'd say what now that's just a totally different totally different paradigm right if you say here's some other founder religion as you know conf- I, I don't know much about confucianism but and i don't want to pick on any one world religion but pick any any religion that says here's the founder they taught us some great principles to live by really good teachings right and they're coming back that means they're alive right now that, that it's a it's a huge bold statement on christianity and what we actually believe in our, in our faith. It says, we believe not just somebody who taught us the principles to live by, but he's alive. He rose from the dead, he's alive, and he's coming back. And, and that's, I think, the bedrock principle. I think that's part of what, what this is trying to say. He's trying to encourage them. Say, you have great hope, uh, just to know that. Just a little bit about the historical context here. So the reason he's writing this is because Something in his first letter was confu- was misunderstood, or somebody wrote another letter in Paul's name and really confused the people, thinking that the day of the Lord had already come or he had already come back. And so people felt like they were left. They felt hopeless. They were confused, right? And so part of what he's doing here is he's clarifying, but at the same time, he's clarifying, man, as I read that, it's like, wow, there's there's so much there. It's so, it's so dense to try to, to try to understand. Here's the other thought I had. He was only in Thessalonia for like three weeks. Right. And in those three weeks, he's saying that he talked about the end times and that, that makes me think he spent a lot of time with these people answering their questions about Jesus and, and the future. And it reminded me of, and I don't know if, if you guys have heard stories like this, but I've got friends who lived during the Jesus movement, you know, in the seventies. And I remember, I've just heard these crazy stories of, um, one of my friends, um, 
who he was in he was in high school and um his father he was struggling with his faith and his he was on the football team and his father reached out to this christian guy who was a um an insurance agent and the insurance agent agreed to meet with him and so so he met with them and he, he answered all his questions then he's like um my friend said hey can i can i invite my my the guys from the football team to come over and every night every night they would come over his house and there'd be like a hundred hundred high school kids meeting in his basement and i said well what did you guys talk about and and my friend who was this insurance agent and he was a businessman he said you know what i just answered their questions and i was like well what were their questions about and he's like they always wanted to talk about revelation they always wanted to talk about the end times they had all kinds of questions about jesus return and it made me think that this reminded me of that like that um you know how maybe young christians are kind of fascinated with this kind of stuff any any uh what are you guys what are your thoughts I was fascinated with it too when I was a young Christian when he spent a lot of time thinking about it and trying to decipher it and come up with a position on this. And um, I think we once we talked about this once before, Greg, because I, uh, I think I don't know if I told you the story or not, but I had a friend who uh, later became a seminary professor. So very, you know, was a budding theologian and he has such strong views in the end times and such strong views and I had a particular view. And honestly, I don't remember what his view was, you know, pre-millennial, post-millennial, was something, but he was super committed to it. And at one point made the statement, you know, I don't see how anyone could believe in the other view, right? That was not his. I don't see how anyone could believe in that other view and call themselves a Christian. And he was so, you know, and he spent a lot of time thinking about this, was very clear in it. And I just kind of came to the view, I think I'm not a pre-millennial, I'm a post-millennial, I'm a pan-millennialist. It's the, uh, the, the bad joke I always tell, it'll all pan out in the end, right? And we'll just be with Jesus and we'll be with the Lord, Um so, uh, but I think you make a really good point. He did spend time talking about this because he says, don't you remember while I was still with you and we were, I was telling you these things. So they were curious, like your football team story. They were curious too. And, 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 and Paul's, I'm sure channeling that in the right way to say, look, this is, this is a big part of Christianity. He is coming again. And there's a reason for huge hope about that. Um, you don't have to know all the details about it. You don't have to spend time speculating the details and endless fascination with those details. It's, you're going to be with the Lord, and but he's coming back, and it can give you great hope. I think having a discussion about this is okay. I think having a view on this is okay, that the theology and knowing where we stand on things, and uh, but I agree that we can allow this. Um, so much is written about, for example, the rapture or different issues, and whether we're pre, post, or mid, or whatever it is on. And um, ultimately, you're right, Greg, the eminent return of Jesus, the, the bodily eminent return of Jesus is going to happen. And we don't know all the details. And um, I just remember in high school, I was the exact same way. We would go out with our young life leader and ask questions either about that or about sex. It was one or the other. And um, that's what we want to know about end times. And, and so, but I, I just remember I read the book as a high school student, The Late Great Planet Earth, and it's all I could think about. And this must be this and trying to fit the puzzle together. But ultimately, I think that's what was happening here in, in uh, Thessalonica. They were so consumed they had missed it or uh, that it was going to happen any day. And so Paul's just trying to straighten them up and saying, guys, we need to just follow Christ, follow Jesus, and these details will work out. Yeah, that's that, that's they think the historical point. That's because they they thought you know oh shoot he came because la your last letter he comes you said he comes like a thief and they could come anytime, so maybe he came and we're still around and we're going through this persecution and he forgot about us right so we missed it and so this is I think the big picture here is he's saying don't worry the the events when they do happen are going to be obvious in such a way that you'll know. And you haven't missed it, and you won't miss it. Um, but there are a couple of things that you know that are worth exploring and thinking about or talking about. The um, this kind of pattern. One one commentator looked at said this is just kind of a pattern that he saw in uh, typical, you know, um, uh, lots of rulers and lots of governments, both before Paul and in his time with the Roman Empire, were shaking their fist at God and defying God. He thought that's just going to continue through all history until Jesus comes again. And so what that's going when that happens, it's going to be a continuation of what's happening now. 
One of the interesting things, and again, not to get into these little details of speculation, is this idea that it's being restrained somehow, that uh, in verse six and seven, and that the people there through those conversations knew what he was talking about. He said, you know what restrains him now so that in his time, he will be revealed. So he's referring to some inside conversation that they had that we don't have the benefit of. Uh, and then and it's some other restraint is taken away. And uh, but they, they knew what that meant. Um, and so some people now reading that, some commentators would say, well, what he's talking about is the uh, Holy Spirit and now is restraining the power of the Antichrist through the presence of the church on earth. And uh, these are the people that are probably pre-trib, right, uh, Greg? Because they would say when the restraint being removed is the rapture, removing the Christians and the whole Christian influence of society uh, uh, from the, and that's the removal of the restraint. And therefore then the law that just breaks free. Okay, could be. That's you know one one way one interpretation, um, but you know at the end it's uh, I, I don't think I don't think we can know and I'm not it's not uh, not as critical to my faith as it used to be I guess that's the best way to. Well, this this actually ties into chapter three too because of their misunderstanding, people were like quitting their jobs, they were becoming idle, they were just maybe we we were sort of speculating a little bit but they were expecting jesus to jesus to return so like if we knew that jesus is going to return tomorrow we probably wouldn't go to work like you know I'll, or, or felix you probably wouldn't go to class right if what well, uh, i if i can interrupt yes how i feel about it is that i would be i would freak out <laughs> to be honest with you because like I would feel like I, if I have to like meet meet him tomorrow, I'd be like, am I ready for it or not? Have I done the things that I should have or not? Because I'll be like, you know, it's it would be kind of prepping. We all of us, you know, followers of Christ, we are prepping for an exam for him to come back. And uh, if that day is tomorrow, I'll be like, you know, there are so many things that I should have done and I haven't. I feel like. That's how I would feel. But then at the end, you know, as a believer of him, I would also be satisfied that, you know, as long as I have my, as long as I have my faith with me, I think I'll be all right. So it would be like a mix, you know, a barrage of emotions coming through. Yeah, it, I, I think we often think if Jesus was to return tomorrow, I would feel so much regret. Like, oh, yeah, I should have talked to this person. Oh, I didn't do this. But the thing is, once Jesus is on the scene, I don't think you can feel regret. I yeah. think you just feel joy and awe. And I mean, at that point, it's like, and, and you just feel amazed that you're able to stand in his presence and yeah. be with him. For example, we think when we get to heaven, we might be able to feel regret like, oh, I wish I, you know, I should have witnessed more or I should have prayed more or I should have given more money to the church or, but I don't think you've, once you're, once you're in the presence of God, you're not going to feel regret. You're going to, you're going to be overwhelmed with his grace. You might be on your face in worship, but the whole idea that we can experience regret or that I think is, is not a, a biblical idea. Well, before we move on to chapter three, anybody else want to make any comments or should we just go right into chapter three? Jim, would you mind reading chapter three? No, sure. Happy to. I'm reading from the New American Standard Version. So this is chapter three. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you and that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men for not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord concerning you, that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life, and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have a right to do this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. 
For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in a quiet fashion and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Man, now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thanks, Jim. It's a kind of cool little letter, you know? I mean, it's short, but he does kind of use these parentheses of like prayer, like in each chapter and kind of reminding them to, to bring the person, you know, when you're feeling persecution, you still have hope and, and, and make sure you make sure you pray and lean on God. And as far as end times, you know, encourages you to pray. And, um, so it seems like a big topic here is, is the topic of work. Um, Jim, what, what have you, what are some of your thoughts on this topic? Well, you know, and we talked about a little bit in the a little bit of the podcast before the kind of uh, value of work and, and why do we work and the kind of different Christian views of work. The one view that you know work is kind of um, uh, work is worthless. You know, there's no point in work. Work is uh, if uh, secular work is uh, pointless because it's all going to burn, and uh, the only thing that's going to last is the word and God of, and people. And so, and that was actually. Uh, a view the church took in the Middle Ages that uh, the Reformation kind of uh, went against because it was like the spiritual work is good, but all this secular stuff is is bad and it's worthless. Um, and some people have that view today that if you're really following Christ, you'd be in full-time ministry because that's the only worthwhile thing and everything else is kind of not really worthwhile. And the second view is a kind of a moderation of that, which says it's worthwhile if you uh, witness people at work and you earn the money to give it away to the church. That makes it worthwhile. But the substance of the actual work you do whether you're a farmer or in finance, you know, the actual substance is, is still worthless, but use it for God's glory that way. And the third view is that the work itself actually has substance and merit and value in God's eyes. So that, uh, so that's kind of what we were talking about a little bit last time. Um, and, um, you know, just to do, go on on that a little bit more, uh, uh, Greg, I think that uh, the contrast here is the kind of the typical reasons the world has to work uh, or to, to make money or to find an identity. Um, and um, in Christianity, it can, be, it can be just totally different than that. If you feel like um, God's grace has come over you and he's, uh, you're really saved by his grace, then, um, then you can actually enjoy the substance of your work and not feel like you need to use it to develop your self-identity and you need to do it to find your worth. You need to do it to do anything. There's a quote uh this Kim, tim keller you mentioned him earlier but he has a sermon on this as well and he quotes jonathan edwards it's an inspiration he always, often draws from and um if you give me a minute here greg i'm just going to read this to you this is just a quote uh, it's actually keller i think paraphrasing jonathan edwards so if you follow that then you get that so here's what it says it says unless you've experienced the grace of god unless you know that you you're not saved by your work unless you know that god embraces you because of jesus's work then when you go to help the poor or when you go to your job, no matter what you do, as good as it seems to be, you're doing it out of self-interest. You never help the person or do the job out of the sheer joy of the person or job. You're always doing it in order to get something from God. But if you know that God loves you because of what Jesus has done, if you know that God embraces you because of his work, that you're in, that you're accepted, now, when I move out in the world, I do the work out of sheer joy of pleasing my master and for the sheer joy of the work itself. I don't do things for God in order to get things from him. I do things simply to give joy to his heart because of what he's done for me. And I don't know when, maybe Randy, you know, when Jonathan Edwards lived, it was a couple hundred years ago. I thought these were just brilliant thoughts, brilliant words. Not, uh, not 20th century. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Maybe it was 1800s when Jonathan Edwards lived. Um, but just brilliant. If you, if the grace of this is, it goes back to Greg, your theme, why we're gospel addicts. So the grace of God has overwhelmed you. And you say, Lord, you've given me everything, you know? Um, 
And now I just want to serve you. I did a loving response out of sheer gratitude, out of sheer gratitude. I'm not earning anything. I'm not building an identity for myself. I don't need them. Identities in you. You're the one who meets my needs. I'm just, I am just, you know, uh, doing these things. And that, uh, that frees you to actually substantively enjoy the things, the thing you're doing, your, da- your daily job. So, uh, so that, that's kind of my first reaction, Greg, and I'll, I'll turn the mic over to someone else about that. I want to read that. <laughs> and thanks for indulging me guys with that long quote, but I thought that was really brilliant. Most people consider Jonathan Edwards the founder of the Great Awakening, the American Great Awakening. And I think he, as I looked it up, he, he lived in the mid 1700s, died at 1758. Okay. Uh, but many would consider him the greatest American theologian of all time. That, um, yeah, incredible, incredible. And, and clearly a gospel addict. Right. <laughs> Amen. On the Amen to that. Hey, do you in in this chapter? Do you see any verses like that you think um, about like work and stuff that apply? Um, well, I do, and I think the one thing I thought about just as I was reading out loud to go say that in the early church there was a feeling that you know, the way to identify a false teacher, you know, how you talk about identifying a false prophet if the prophecy don't come, doesn't come true, then you know the Old Testament the idea was they pay for it with their life because the prophecy didn't come true. And in the New Testament church, one of the ways you identified a false teacher was that they came and they stayed too long and they asked for money. And so there's, and it's part of the precedent Paul talks about here. I wonder if that came from this. He says, I, look, I did the, doing this in verse nine so that you would follow our example. Um, you know, if, if you don't work, you, um, the man does not work, neither should he eat. Right. And they were, uh, and, and he says, I had a right to do it. Right. It's okay for someone in ministry to earn their living from the ministry. That's really okay. I was trying to set an example for you and just and to work really hard and not be a burden to any of you, right? Um, I thought that was that was really interesting. So it was kind of setting that tone early on. You know, I'm going to uh, earn my own living, not ask you for money. Uh, to kind of just kind of set an example for you. That's good. What do you what do you make of verses 11 and 12? I, I this is kind of interesting. We hear that some of some among you are idle. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread they eat. As for you, brothers, never tire of doing what is right. I just thought it was kind of interesting. Verse 11. Yeah. You hear that some of you are idle. They're not busy. They are busy bodies. There's got to be a textbook definition of busy bodies. I always thought of that as people who went around just gossiping. And just kind of talking about other people and just kind of, you know, there are people in the church that do that. That's the classic, you know, the, the old church lady skit, right? Or something like that. Just someone who's, um, maybe that's unfair to church lady. I shouldn't even say that. But, <laughs> but, but the busybody, I was talking with somebody who's just like, you're not really productive. You're not adding anything. You're not making a contribution either to the community or the church. You're just going around, you know, chatting and talking to people and gossiping. And, and that's not really making, making that kind of contribution. So. Um, and this, I love that. I do love verse 12, you know, uh, work in a quiet fashion, eat your own bread, you know, uh, get back to work. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, Jim, have you, you know, you've, you've, uh, I mean, you work a secular job and you have pretty much your whole life. Did you ever struggle with that? Like those different views that you mentioned earlier? Like, did you, do you find yourself wrestling with like, oh man, I should be in Christian ministry or uh did you did you did you wrestle with that at all you know thanks thanks for asking i i I did especially earlier on in a young christian life because i had that more of those first view than maybe morphing into the second view so i did be a little careful as i think about this topic not to get sound too defensive because i am in a secular profession right to sound like i'm self-justifying about what it is but there's lots of christian examples of people who came by and who had those first views that the only worthwhile thing is is ministry i remember um um, a missionary friend we had who just uh, was talk, talking to us saying, you know, I don't know why anyone would not be in missions because missions are at the heart of God. And who doesn't want to be at the heart of God because missions are at the heart of God. And, well, that person was a missionary. And so they thought that that was their view of their life, how they were at the heart of God, but everybody else wasn't. Uh, I remember that uh, story because we uh, had them over and, and then they said, oh yeah, well, and how's work going for you? And I said, uh, it's fine. It's just fine. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't. 
think it was worthwhile. I mean, you already told me you don't think it's worth what I'm doing. It's like a complete waste of time, waste of my life. If I really was at the heart of God, I'd be admissions. So I probably, you know, had that view and then kind of really through uh, uh, Keller's teaching and some of this other study, thinking about it. Um, and maybe the tie in here, verse ch chapters three and two, Greg, is that it has a little bit to do with your eschatology. Because mm. if you do think that it's going to burn, like this whole, that if you think that because of the fall of mankind, Satan has won and God took his valuable creation, he's just going to burn it up. And it's not going to, it's like, it's, it's all this stuff around you is worthless. If you think that's the, the end game, uh, then you say, why well, spend time in farming or finance or making donuts, whatever it is, why spend time doing any of that stuff? And, and, they, and they, the notion is like, no, God did loves you say, Did you say making donuts? Making donuts, canning carrots. Making, making donuts. It is kind of, it, let's be honest, it's kind of hard to justify making donuts as a problem. Uh, it's actually a side kind of a rabbit hole. I didn't mean like for us to go down. I had a friend who was thinking about starting a business and he was going to start a donut franchise or buy a donut franchise. And he wrestled with that because he thought, I want to make a worthwhile contribution to the world. And am I really making a worthwhile contribution if I'm selling donuts? You know, yeah. um, uh, but you know, um, but I think whatever you're doing, you're you are make if you're making a contribution to the world, you're 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 cultivating the earth, the way God wanted us to cultivate the earth. When He's, uh, it's not the God loves matter. God loves this, and I think there's a there's a theological point in here when talking about working with your, you know, um, some versions say you know work with your hands because a lot of other worldviews and religions thought you know, the, that it was really beneath your dignity to work with your hands. That the high-minded view, this is a kind of a Greek view, as I understand it at the time, was that if the high-minded view is to work with your mind and working with your hands was really beneath, beneath your dignity. And so they had a real pecking order in the professions. And uh, Paul comes along and says, look, I, you know, I worked my hands when I was with you and I was a preacher and, and um, I want you to go back and work with your hands. And, and it's a real topsy-turvy way of looking at the dignity of work in a world that would have said, wait, the high-minded thing is to be a philosopher in the square um, and uh, not to uh, do that kind of dirty work. And, and, one, and actually uh, Keller, not one commenter, Keller talking about this would say, you know, we have a God who starts off creation with his hands in the dirt, making the earth and making the dirt. And God loves matter. He made it because he loves it. And his command to us in the garden before the fall was cultivate the garden and the command after the fall was cultivate the garden. I still want you to do it. It's going to be filled with thorns and thistles. It's going to be rough. It's going to be tough, but I still want you to do it. And the way we do that is by working and making a contribution to, to society and serving each other. That's a great summary. Uh, I'm glad you, I was, I'm really glad you brought up uh, back to the beginning that we were working. God had made us to work before sin entered the world that he had given us jobs. And so work is worthwhile. Work is meaningful. Work has purpose. I loved having you come and speak to our meetings, like when I was leading the college group. And um, because I realized that, you know, 98% of the students I was working with were going to go into secular work. And I just loved having you come as somebody who follows Jesus and has a secular career. And you always did a great job just kind of explaining that, you know, there is a purpose in work. And um, doesn't Keller talk about how, like, we need investment? Because you're kind of an investment banker, at least you were at, at one point. Yeah. We're going to need investment bankers in heaven. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's right. Yes. Maybe, maybe that's a theological stretch. Who knows? But, yeah, I was an investment banker. Now I'm just, a, 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 I guess, a commercial banker working at a bank. But. Yeah, Keller's view is that the you know this this world is going to continue and God's going to have a society and he's going to put people to work and, and at one point he said, uh, so not, God's not going to be preachers like me. So some you some of you out there are going to have to retrain me for my job in the next kingdom. Just an interesting theological point of view of what life in paradise is going to be like. That it's not going to be us sitting in clouds playing harps and singing worship songs. It's going to be working and building a society that you know is led by the Lord. It's a very different view. Um, so um, I would encourage you, if you haven't read, look at a book by Randy Alcorn called Heaven. And just it's incredible the amount of work he's done. But he does the same thing. And he says he believes that we'll have that we don't just sit around, that we'll have work that we do every day. And in the scriptures, it talks about people coming in and leaving the holy city and people will 
be working and, and, and doing things for the Lord. Um, so I found that very interesting. But yeah, yeah. Randy Alcorn's, Randy Alcorn's book um, on heaven is excellent. I, I, I think Keller quotes that. I, I can't be sure about that, but I've heard that name before, Randy Elkhorn. I do want to look that up because it's, uh, it, 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 Keller has a sermon on, called Culture uh, that is a, a sermon on Isaiah 60. And in Isaiah 60, he talks about a view of the end times. And in that if chapter, we won't go to it now, but there are ships coming from Spain and things coming to Jerusalem and things, there's all kinds of activity that's geographically located. And, it, and, and, and the view is like, well, this is not on this earth. This is in the next kingdom. And he's talking about a world where there's activity. There's commercial activity. There's uh, culture. There's, there's different cultures that are, you know, and this is just a beautiful description of the multicultural uh, uh, body of Christ where people are going to say, I'm a Christian, but I'm an African Christian, or I'm a European Christian, or I'm an Asian Christian, whatever you are, but you have your culture that doesn't end. It continues on. They had cultural identity in paradise fascinating uh i wonder randy if some of those views come from that randy elkhorn book i'd love to i'd love to take a look at that but it's just a so so again your view of the end times and your view of where this world is going does affect what you do now that phrase like what you hope in affects how you live today right and what do you think is worth doing with your time ultimately what is it that we're looking in christian service we're not looking for god or for numbers we're looking for God to be able to say, well done, well done, good and faithful servant. And so if we're doing what God called us to do, um, you know, I, I, I have this struggle when you do an event and if 20 people come to know Christ, does it mean it was better than if 19 did? Right. And it's like, I, I don't, ultimately it's, it's up to God when he does with that. So ultimately what we need to be able to say is I did what God asked and I please the Lord. And so, you know, we're called to be faithful and the results are up to him. And so I agree with you. I, I, I was listening. I'm like, well, yeah, that sounds cool. But ultimately service to him is just about being obedient to what he's asked and, and to um, leave the results to him. Yeah. I, I think you guys, because uh, Randy, you and Greg at full-time Christian ministry, there's all kinds of unique struggles about that. But I think, I think the blessing that you can feel Randy is that God has already said to you, well done, a good and faithful servant. Cause you're going to hear those words based on the completed work of Christ. Not on, he won't say, I oh, had 19 and some other guy had 21. Yeah, it's a little short. Like <laughs> well done. The good, a servant in that sentence is Jesus. And it's not you. You're going to say, Randy, well done, a good and faithful servant. Cause of what, Jesus did, and you're completely 100% justified in my eyes. And, 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 and you say, in light of that, um, I want to do this, whether two people come or 19 or 1900 or 10,000. It's all, I'm faithful in the process. Lord, you, you bless it. Your spirit blesses it, whatever you want to do with it, you know, but, and when you take that view and you feel like I'm not, it's not dependent on me and it's, I'm not justifying my life because, you know, 19 people came or 21 people came. It's just, it's just him. Right. So it frees you to serve him for all the right reasons. But you probably saw a lifetime of working on that attitude to get the attitude right, I imagine. So <laughs> why is it why is it uh, that we serving others is so fulfilling? It's because it's in the very heart of God. The father serves the son. The son serves the spirit, the spirit. They, they defer to each other. The, and that's the, the power of the Trinity is so crucial. You know, when I was a young Christian, I used to think, oh, I don't understand the Trinity. And I really don't really care too much about it to try to understand it. But I think the older I grow, the more I grow in my Christian life, the more I see how, first of all, God is a community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we are made for relationships. Relationships are what really matter. Nobody on their deathbed says, I wish I would have spent more time working in my office, uh, you know, on my books or something like that. Like they want to be, it's all about relationships. But then there's also th that whole idea about like serving. Why is service so fulfilling? It's because it's in the very heart of God. That's what God is. God is all about serving, giving his life, you know, sending his son. I, I think that's pretty interesting. Felix, do you want to say something? In retrospect, I was thinking about this. 
for a very long time, I had been thanking you for, you know, bringing me to Christ. And every time, you know, I thank you, I've never seen an ounce of pride in you. And I think one of the reasons for that is that you feel that you didn't do it for yourself or you didn't do it at all. It was actually God who did it. You were just, you know, that resource that he kind of used. And I think now I, I kind of understand that, you know, what, what it means, because as basic human beings, it kind of does feel nice to get that attention and, you know, to talk to yourself and, you know, have that satisfaction to do something nice. And I think that is why we are uh, such selfish beings, because we want to feel good about ourselves in so many different ways. And I think doing good stuff, like all these Hollywood actors do it, they do it so that, you know, they can feel good about themselves. But you need, you need, to, have your, you need to have your heart in the right place. And that can only happen uh, if you have real faith in God. Otherwise, it will not happen. You know, if you're a hypocrite, even if you're trying to, you know, pretend to be a good Christian, but, you know, if deep down inside you're thinking like, oh, I'm such an amazing person, but you're not. So I think that kind of kind of ties in everything, having your fulfilling faith in Christ, how, how strong you are in your faith with Christ. And I've seen you because like, you know, at, at a certain point, point in my life i i kind of felt like you know what if greg would you know thinks of me as a trophy you know he he wants to portray me like oh look this is what this is what i've done and then after observing i realized that that it is not the case so i think in in that regard it's very important to have your heart in the right place because if you don't have that in the right place, you will always, you know, end up doing stuff for yourself instead of doing it for, for his glory. Amen. I appreciate that. And I, I have never, ever thought of you anything <laughs> like that. Uh, I appreciate but But I can see where you, a person would think that way because that's kind of like the secular mindset is, you know, Christians just want to get converts and guys just guys in ministry just want to build their ministry and get more get bigger and bigger and bigger uh be more and more successful but really i just want to serve the lord i just want to be faithful i mean every day i'm like god who do you want me to talk to you know i was on campus the other day and my expectation was i was going to meet about 25 international students and have conversations with them i ended up spending my like four hours with one person Mm-hmm. And it was because I, I had to help this person get their keys, uh, get their ID, get to get their, they, they showed that they, they, I saw them in the student center with all their luggage. And I was like, oh my gosh, you're in the student center with all your luggage. And you're, I know you don't live in the student center. You've got to get that luggage to your dorm. And so I went over and I just said, hey, how can I help you? And I ended up spending four hours with that person. And I drove home that day thinking, I guess that was what I was supposed to do that day, is just spend the yeah. time with that one person. I don't know if I'll ever see that person again or not. You know, yeah, but just like, you know, when you when you met me that day, God planned only that for you. Exactly. I mean, it was it it's just divine appointments and um so I really appreciate you you sharing that, Ali. Let's bring this bring this to a close and make some final comments here. Um, any Randy, any any final comments you want to make? Just kind of wrapping this up. No, no, nothing really. I just think it, it, this is very applicable for today, and and, um, and just this idea of focusing on Christ's return and, and keeping you know a disciplined life that. Uh, we rely on Christ. So, yeah, thanks. Jim, any final comments? I want to reflect on the conversation that you and Felix were just having, talking about that 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 trophy idea, because when you, I've seen you do this kind of ministry for a while, Greg, and I've seen the kind of connection you have with people. You're pouring yourself out to people, and you're just, and you have people kind of attracted to that. And I just, uh, you know, and, and Randy, I, I don't know you as well as I know Greg. I'm sure your ministry is the same way. But I mean, Greg, when I watch you do that, that kind of connection after people because they know you have this genuine 
feeling. And I was thinking of some of the theme from first and second Thessalonians together as a whole, because in first Thessalonians, Paul talks about more about the personal connection he had with people. And I'm looking at, this is in first Thessalonians two, verse eight, he says, having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you have become very dear to us. And then he talks later, I was just trying to find that he says, who is our crown? Who's our reward? Isn't it you? So uh, Felix, when you mentioned the idea of the trophy, the biblical thing that Paul was talking about, I said, you know what? You know, people talk about what is my reward in heaven? I'm going to work for a reward in heaven. I'm going to get my crown in heaven and I'm going to get some kind of big blessing in heaven because all this wonderful Christian work I did. And what Paul talks about, and Greg and I have talked, Greg, we talked about this a lot. The reward you're going to get is that you know, the people that you've affected and impacted and influenced for Christ are going to be there with you in eternity. And we're going to sit there and, 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 and Felix, you're going to look at Greg and say, isn't Jesus wonderful? And Greg say, I know, isn't he incredible? I know I can't get, it's so great. It's, thank you. So, and, and so Greg's going to say, you know, my reward is you're here with me and we're, we're worshiping him together. And we're just spending eternity together in his presence and his glory. You're that reward and that crown because of the fond affection he's kind of built for this So. Anyway, I want to tie that in with a the theme of first and this their conversation with this theme that I think was carrying through first and second Thessalonians. So thanks, Greg. Yeah, I think that kind of that's how Greg kind of gained my trust over over the years. Now we've been friends for a while now. And you know, when you when you're new to to the faith, you kind of have a lot of unanswered questions in your head. And I think Greg kind of helped me solve that puzzle throughout my journey. So he, he also gained a lot of trust uh, while doing that. You know, I, I, I figured out that, you know, Greg, that, you know, Greg is not that kind of a person, but it, 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 takes, it takes a certain amount of time. And, you know, now our bond is on a different level because of that. And then, you know, he always talks about uh, sharing that joy that he has. And now I realize it. And now that he does it for other people, I, I can see it. That why he does it. He wants other people to have the same joy that, you know, I have it or he has it. And I think that's what it is all about. That That's why you do it. And, you know, it's kind of like planting a seed. He planted a seed with me. I am the seed. And now what I want to do next, I've been thinking about starting my own little ministry over here at the university because I've been like meeting people from all different cultures and I've been like talking to them, making like friends with them so that, you know, one day I can witness to them and share my story with them. So it's like planting that seed with me. And then, you know, I go ahead and start my own ministry and, you know, share the word, spread the word. So I think that's how that's how it is supposed to happen. That's spiritual multiplication, right? That's Amen. And then Randy can get involved with that because Randy, Randy and I might come down and visit you then because uh, we would love to help you start a, uh, a, uh, a ministry where you're at. Um, yeah. Hey, I used to, you know, when I first started out, I used to say that ministry is making friends for eternity. That's that's kind of how I viewed ministry. Is ministry is making friends for eternity. I'm just trying to make friends that are going to last forever. And then I always thought about discipleship as friendship with a vision. It's friendship with a vision. It's having a vision for what that person could be to be the best version of themselves because of Jesus. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Gospel Addict Podcast. Feel free to contact us via email at gospeladdictpodcast at gmail.com Stay tuned for our next episode and remember on your worst days you're never beyond the reach of God's grace and on your best days you're never beyond the need of God's grace See you next time